Philippians chapter 1, we are still studying the book of Philippians. I've been personally tremendously blessed through our time in Philippians. I hope you have. I've just been getting encouraged and built up, challenged and rebuked. I mean, I've really been enjoying this. I hope it's been the same for you. The title of today's message is The Joy of Gospel Unity. The Joy of Gospel Unity. We're going to start reading in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says, Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you, and both from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for Christ's sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Chapter 2. If therefore there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which not only informs, but also transforms. Thank you that it's living and it's active and by your spirit, You use it to change our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ, to apply more gospel truth to the way that we live and the way that we think and conduct ourselves toward others. And we ask that this time in your word would actually be transformative. We ask that you give us a grace now to open our minds and our hearts, our very beings, to be changed by you. We thank you that you've not called us to religion. Thank you that there's not some standard in front of us that you're telling us to attain to and just try harder, just be better. Thank you that that's not the gospel. The gospel is that on our behalf, you've already done everything to provide for our forgiveness, our newness, our strength, our unity, our joy. Thank you that you change us and we don't have to change ourselves. That's great news, Lord. So we ask that that would be happening here. We, we ask together that you would please empower me, anoint me to teach and to preach. I can't do this, much less do it well apart from you. These things are incredibly important. I understand that I'm standing before your blood-bought bride whom you love dearly. So help me to communicate, Lord. I really want you to be glorified in this time. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What if... What if everything that we thought, we being collective humanity, what if everything that we thought is humanity 
about how we ought to view ourselves in relation to others was wrong. What if everything that was intuitive to us as people about self-preservation was inherently and deeply flawed? Paul in this letter is writing from a place of pain. He's writing from a place of loss. He's in prison. He didn't want to be in prison. This isn't how he thought his life would turn out. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And in our text last week, week, excuse me, he testified to the Philippians that, that though he's in a place of suffering and pain and loss, it's actually turning out for good, for the greater good. The most important things, in this case here, the gospel, are actually being furthered in light of his loss and his pain and his difficulty. It's not that it doesn't hurt. He's got this joy, but but there is this pain. People were advancing themselves and promoting themselves to his detriment. But he's testifying that, wow, even though this is hurtful and it's unjust because of who God is, it's actually working out for the better. The most important things are being advanced faster in the midst of my loss and my pain. And so realizing that, Paul then makes this declaration and says, you know what, whether I live or I die, he wasn't sure what it would be, whether I live or I die, Christ is going to be glorified in me. That was the decision of his life. He said, no matter what happens to me, when life doesn't seem like I thought it would be, when, when things are hard and painful, or whether it's okay, I'm choosing that Christ is going to be glorified in my life. Because, he said, for me, to live is Christ. He's just saying, I I don't know what else one would live for. I don't know what else someone would make their life all about. I mean, is there someone better than Jesus? Is there something better than Christ? For me, to live is Jesus. So I'm going to see to it that Christ is glorified then. Whether I live or die, whatever happens to me, good, bad, and the ugly. And then he expressed this, this sincere desire to die. And it wasn't one of those, you know, it wasn't one of those places where I've been and many of you have been where I, I'm just so bummed I, I, I kind of want to die. It wasn't that. It wasn't that at all. It was a sincere, I want to be with Jesus thing. Like for real. Like Paul actually like wanted to be with Jesus so much that he's all, to me, it's all about Jesus if I live. But if I die, that's actually a gain. That's a gain. And then kind of realizing that he thought it was God's will for him to live, he made this decision. He said, if I'm going to live on, it's going to mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, my life is going to count for the glory of God. I am not going to be one of those guys that just goes through the motions. I'm not going to be one of those guys that just does the nine to five and then accumulates stuff subsequently and just gets through. He says, "I'm I'm not doing it that way. For me... To live is going to mean fruitfulness for the glory of God, the betterment of people. I'm going to serve other people with my life and bring glory to Jesus Christ and further his cause in the world. I'm not just going to get by. I'm not going to live for myself. These are radical things Paul was saying. Okay, these are things that only could be said in light of the gospel. The good news about what God has given us through Christ and his cross and his resurrection. 
And the gospel didn't only enable Paul to say those things, it enables us to say those things. And so in trying to bring us and the Philippian church in line with that, in our opening verse, verse 27, Paul says to them, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. After giving this great testimony of how he felt about it, now conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy. What does it mean that our lives would be worthy of the gospel of Christ? That word worthy means to live in a way that is suitable according to some other thing. Here the comparison is the gospel. Live out life in a way that is consonant with, consistent with the truths of the gifts and the love of God that have been given to us in Christ in a substitutionary death upon the cross in our place. That our, our living and our relationships would reflect and be consistent with and hence suitable or worthy of who Christ is and what he's done. Now, the way that Paul is going to frame this, because there's a, a lot of ways that we could talk about living lives worthy, suitable, consonant with the gospel. The way that Paul's going to frame it here is in relationships. He's going to say that we ought to have worthy relationships. We ought to do relationships in a way that's consistent with the gospel. And particularly in the context, it's relationships within the church. So like us, Christians among Christians. And what he's pleading for is, Humility-driven unity. That's what he wants. Humility-driven unity. That's why he says in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete. In other words, nothing would make me happier than if you guys would be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now here's what Paul does in and pushing them toward this, realizes a bit of a backdrop, okay? That Christianity is not about a bunch of rules or standards that we need to try to keep or attain to. Okay? That's, not, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is completely about what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. What God in Christ has accomplished for us. Here's, here's what Christianity says. We've performed really poorly, like bad. Sin, wickedness, failure. We've performed really badly, but we've been treated super kindly by God in Christ. So much so that Christ died in our place on the cross, rose from the dead to give us new life, not just extended life, different life. And still... A life that isn't about the rules, trying to keep them or standards trying to attain to them because it's already been settled, we cannot do it. So rather than the way that he will push them toward right gospel unity in relationships is not to say, be better. We've got enough people telling us that, right? Our wives, you know what I mean? Our school, our bosses, our peers. Got enough people telling us, be better. Do better, try harder. It's not what the gospel says to us. It's not what the Bible says to us. That's not what Paul is saying to them. Rather, he's going to communicate to them that because of what Christ has done, they already have unity. What needs to happen now is that we just live that out. See, look, look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read it from the New Living this time because it's more clear. 
These are rhetorical questions. He says to them, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? The rhetorical questions are leading toward a, well then, right? Rhetorical questions. In other words, he's saying to them, are you benefiting from the gospel? I'll turn it on us. Are you encouraged by the fact that you belong to Christ? You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of a lamb. You don't belong to yourself anymore, but but even better than that, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You belong to Jesus, who is really nice and happens to be the king of the universe. And he's asking them, is there any encouragement from that? And the difficulty of life when stuff isn't making sense, are you encouraged by the fact that you belong to Jesus? And then he says, is there any comfort in love? In other words, are are you comforted by the fact that the God of the universe loves you with an infinite, unending, unconditional, all-consuming, beyond comprehensible love. Is there any comfort in that for you? And then he says, is there any fellowship in the Spirit? In other words, has the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us and bears witness to the fact that we are all children of God, right? Romans 8, the Spirit in us enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy to the God of the universe. Because the Spirit indwells us, don't you have a sense of connectivity to God, he's saying? And then don't we have a sense of connectivity to one another? Because we're now brothers and sisters, blood brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus. And so he's saying to them, is there any value in that fellowship for you? Any comfort in the love? Any encouragement that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son and you belong to him? And then finally, he says, have your hearts been made tender and compassionate? I mean, that's what the gospel does. We have new hearts, brand new hearts, where once we were hardened by the effects of sin and the wounds of sin and the fact of sin, we're now made tender by the love of God and the newness of heart and life given to us through Christ. And is there any compassion where once we were, we were closed off, now we're open? to love God and love one another. He's saying, if you're encouraged by the fact that you belong to Jesus, if you're comforted by his unending love, if you're connected by his spirit indwelling you, and if you have this new heart, well then, you see, he's setting up some if-thens. He is highlighting what has been given to us through the cross of Christ. New ownership, an experience of love, fellowship by the Spirit indwelling, and a brand new heart. So then, he says, it only makes sense that we would live in a way that is consonant with, suitable to, worthy of those things. As we've said before, what we want to do then is bring the practical in line with those positional truths. We belong to Christ. We're seated in the heavenlies with Him. We're loved and adored more than we could ever imagine full of the Holy Spirit, brand new heart. So, so live that way. Be, be honest to that. Be true to that. Because theologically, what is being pressed upon us and what we must realize 
is that our unity has already been accomplished by God for us. Okay, unity is a, a big deal. Lots of people unify around other things. Lots of people break up about certain things. We're being pressed in this text to be of one mind, one spirit, one love, working together on one purpose. And theologically speaking, God has already accomplished this unity for us. And so what we're called to do is be true to that then. You see, within the church, and the context is church relationships here, would you agree that we often fail each other? Yeah? If you're not saying, yeah, you're a liar. And so now you failed me. So there. We fail each other. We hurt each other. You know, the most hurt I've ever been in my life has been in the church. We fail each other. We hurt each other. We, we let each other down. And then, and then what we often do is we give up relationally. And, and, and we break up. Happens all the time. When we do that, what we're being is disingenuous to the new identity that we have in the gospel. We're being disingenuous, untrue to what has been accomplished in us and among us by God through the gospel. When we're being true to the gospel is when we hurt, offend, disappoint, let each other down, and we choose not to break up. We let love cover a multitude of sins. That's when we are in fact being true to who we actually are in Christ and the reality of the gospel. That is when we are being genuine. Uh, Paul's putting it this way. The things that we have in common, belonging to Jesus, that's all of us as Christians here, belonging to Jesus an experience of the love of God, an infilling of the Holy Spirit, and a brand new heart, the things that we have in common are greater than anything that would threaten to tear us apart. Like, what's a bigger deal than that? Like, oh my gosh, you won't believe what she said. Okay, yeah, it was really bad, but belonging to Christ, experience the love of God, indwelt by the Spirit, new heart, we have all that together, that unity accomplished, you're gonna break up over that? You see, what we have in Christ through the gospel is greater than anything that would threaten to tear us apart. And so then the secret of fruitful Christian living and relationships is to partner with God in the truth of the gospel. Okay, what God has already accomplished on our behalf is is to partner with that. Right? Live in a manner that is worthy of that. Commit yourself to that thing. And then also realize in verse 13, and you guys will talk about it next week, that it says, it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only has it already been accomplished, but God by his Holy Spirit at this moment is working in us actually all the time toward these things. So then fruitful Christian living is a man or a woman who says, I choose to partner with God in this endeavor. And in this context, it's unity. Being of one mind, same love, one spirit, intent on one purpose. We choose to partner with God. He's accomplished it for us. We don't have to muster it up. He's working in us. It's not about our strength. But we cooperate. Here's how this works out practically. Uh, We've talked before about... um, Indicatives and imperatives, right? Big words, you know I love them, get used to it. So an indicative 
is a statement of fact. You are sitting down. Statement of fact. An imperative is a command. Stand up. Don't actually do it. That would be a command, right? Stand up. So an indicative is a statement of fact. An imperative is a command. Now, we do have commands in the Bible, right? We do have lots of imperatives. Love one another. Forgive one another. Help the poor. All these things. There are commands. But the commands in the Bible, the imperatives, are never separated from indicatives. Statements of fact that not only inform the commands, but empower them. Okay? Any commands we have in the Bible are empowered by gospel truths. For example, we have been called to love one another. That's an imperative. It's a command. The indicative, the statement of fact that empowers and informs that is we are greatly loved by God. And that truth is not merely informational, it's transformational. So so that when it is delivered, when it is received, when the Holy Spirit works it in us, there is a transformation that takes place. We have been greatly loved, therefore we love one another. We have been forgiven, therefore we forgive one another. I, I think about how much I've sinned in the last week. I've sinned so much more than you guys think I have. And you've sinned more than I think you do. I really think well of you guys. <laughs> I, I think of what God has forgiven me of in the last week. Not to mention my lifetime. There, there's some of you here, you went to high school with me. You know what I'm talking about. What God has forgiven me of. Now that's... That's not just information, that's transformational gospel truth that then comes with an associated command to forgive others. And, 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 and the logical person with a tender and compassionate heart that's been renewed by the gospel says, how can I withhold forgiveness having been forgiven of so much? We have been made peace with through the cross of Jesus Christ with God. We, we have peace with God. Therefore, we make peace with one another. We have been accepted, transformational information. Therefore, we accept other people. And it's not as though we were accepted. Think about when, when we were accepted. The Bible says in Romans 5 that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. In other words, when there was nothing meritorious or desirous or awesome about us, God didn't look at you and be like, that cutest little thing. Actually, we were storing up wrath daily. We were altogether unacceptable. But because of the love of God manifesting the person of Christ on the cross, we are accepted. Therefore, we are called to accept who would seem unacceptable to us in behavior, appearance, proclivities, thought processes, you name it. We've been united to God in Christ. That's the indicative. Therefore, the imperative, be united. One mind, one spirit. These indicatives drive these imperatives. And there's a certain amount of joy that will be experienced in your Christian life if you just get the indicatives, the truths, the statements of fact. If you just get those, it brings you a certain amount of joy. It's really good stuff. But the fullness of joy comes when we live that stuff out. That's when the fullness of joy comes. Not only when you are loved much, but when you start to love much. 
Not only when you are forgiven much, but when you start to forgive much. Not only because you have peace with God, but when you make peace with other people, therein lies the fullness of joy in the Christian life. As opposed to dissonance with God by never getting to the outflow of the gospel, the therefores in dissonance with people which just robs our joy. So God has actually accomplished our unity through the gospel, is working in us to work that out through us. And so we live in harmony with God and his purposes in the world when we then pursue, pursue these things. And in the context here, it is pursuing unity. So how do we pursue, how do we be active about, not just passive about, how do we pursue gospel-created, humility-driven unity, which is what he's talking about here? Well, number one, first of all, we realize that humility does not equal homogeneity, homogeneity, sameness, okay? Did I say humility or unity? I said humility? Okay, I meant unity. I'm glad I caught myself. Thank you that nobody's listening. Unity, it's like right there, dude. Unity does not equal homogeneity or homogeneity, sameness. Okay, we often make that mistake. We think, gosh, if if we're really going to be unified, if we're going to have this deep thing, then then we really got to be alike. We got to be the same. And a certain set of beliefs and a certain set of behaviors and a certain social strata, whatever it is. But you see, unity actually assumes diversity. Unity, Christian unity, assumes diversity. What's happening with the call to Christian unity is that there is something that someone who is greater, that lays a greater claim on our life than anything that would merely diversify or make us unique. There is someone, the truth of Christ, Christ himself, the gospel, that lays a greater claim to our life than the things that diversify us or make us unique. There is great diversity. You are unique. Some of you need to hear that. You're special. In Jesus' name, you're special. God made you special and he loves you very much. And around the the throne of God will be every tongue, tribe, and nation. Incredible diversity. But our unity comes from the fact that there is someone, Christ, something, the gospel, that lays greater claim to our life than everything that makes us unique and diverse. Therefore, we are ultimately unified in the gospel and in Christ. And that brings us into fellowship then. We have this mutual investment in God and the things of God. Secondly, it has to do unity with the spirit and the mind. It says in 127, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And then in chapter two, verse two, being of the same mind, united in spirit. I think that those are being used kind of somewhat synonymously here just to make a point, kind of like when you say, dude, do it with all your heart and soul. You aren't actually look for, looking for a bifurcation of heart and soul. You're not like, do this much with your heart and this much with your soul and get her done. You're, you're saying, all together with all of who you are. I think that's what's going on here. When he says spirit and mind. Well, let's try to understand it a little bit. The word for mind in Greek is the word suke. 
In the New Testament, when, when the mind is spoken of, what is meant is this. The place of emotion, decision, and ambition. See how it kind of blurs with the heart? Because most people, when they think mind, emotion, women are like, my heart. Guys are more, but anyway. So the mind, right, this thing, this place in us that has to do with emotion, decision, ambition. It points to how we feel about things and react to things. It speaks of what things we consider valuable, value judgments, and what things we consider worth pursuing, life judgments. So when you, when you think about that, when you, when you think about the place of emotion and ambition and decision, when you think about how we feel and how we react, I mean, we are so radically diverse in that, right? Like some of you here are Democrats and some of you are... Um, what's the other thing? Republicans. Some of you are super green. Some of you really don't care. Some of you surf. Other people do something. There's this, there's this diversity that's huge among us. So, so how can we then, we together here, then, then how can we have one spirit, one mind? The only way we can do that is if we together, collectively and individually, get the mind of Christ. Okay, okay so 1 Corinthians 2.16 speaks of the mind of Christ, that we as Christians have it. It's referred to in verse 5 of chapter 2 right here, where it says, have this attitude. It can be translated mindset. Have this mindset in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the goal then, in all our diversification, if we're going to have ultimate unity, we've got to somehow get the mind of Christ. How, how do we get the mind of Christ? Because we all think and feel and react so differently. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is a hint, right? It says in Romans 12, 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay, there's some possibility of our, of, of our minds changing. So, so the way that we feel changing, the way that we think, the way that we process, the way that we act, our ambitions changing. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The best I could put that together from Scripture, what that has to do with is Colossians 3.16, which says to us, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So there's this possibility of our minds being renewed through transformation and the word of Christ dwelling in us so that emotion, decision, and ambition are changed. How we feel about things and react to them is different. What we consider valuable and worth pursuing is shifted. And these things are changed, shifted, and different to be in line with Christ. And the only time, the only time that I think we can know that we're in line with Christ is when we're in line with the Bible. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Everything else is subject to subjectivism. Judgment calls. So if we want to attain the mind of Christ individually and collectively and and have it together, have this overarching unity, then we got to all read our Bibles. Not, Not like you read Sports Illustrated or Better Homes and Gardens or Surfer Magazine, but like consuming your Bible. The disciples said, Jesus, we're not gonna leave you, dude. Who else has the words of life? Living and active. 
In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's no clearer explanation, explication, and exegesis of Christ Jesus than the Bible. So so if we're going to get the mind of Christ together, we have to be people who are mutually committed to the Scriptures. Then what happens is a common renewing and a corporate conforming to the person and the mind and the image of Christ. Not that we still agree on everything, but there's this overarching one thing we agree on that keeps us together. Jesus. That we belong to him, that through him we experience the love of God, that because of him the spirit of God indwells us, and because of what he did we have brand new hearts that are tender and compassionate. Those overarching things keep us together. We we, we don't break up anymore. And then then so it changes, you know, our, our basic approach. It's transformational to our basic approach of relationships as explained in verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, don't do anything from selfishness. Just think about for a minute, stop right there. Think about how much stuff we do from selfishness. I'd be hard pressed to find segments of my day where I'm not operating from selfishness. And I work at a church. (laughs) How jacked up am I? And yet, it says, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. But rather with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. This is radical. This is totally radical. Consider others more important than ourselves? Who does that? Culture has shaped us from day one to look out for number one. We have instincts, fallen instincts, which push us towards self-preservation all the time. In every exchange, in every relationship, in every investment, that's why we sign contracts. Contracts are self-preservationist in nature, self-protectionist in nature. This is totally countercultural and counter to our natural nature apart from Christ. Think of others as more important than yourself. It doesn't mean you think of them as better than yourself. See, some of you immediately went there because we live in a culture that is obsessed with comparisons. That's what we do. We compare the new celebrities to the old celebrities and the new rock stars to the old rock stars and who's the greatest and blah, blah, blah. And we do that with ourselves. Women, you get your women magazines and you look at those airbrushed women and you're like, gosh, I don't have those same curves and I'm out here when they're in here. And then we, you know, I go surfing. I think he's better than me. I'm worse than him, but I'm better than him. So I'm better than him. And we, we form our identity. <laughs> we form our identity on the basis of comparison. That's sin, wickedness. That is a major cause of brokenness in our culture. That's why pornography is ruining, ruining our men. Because what, what, is, what is there to compare? So some of you went there when I said, when the Bible said, Consider others as more important than yourself. So you thought, oh, better. Okay, they're better than me. Some of you have self-esteem issues, so you were like, they are. Everyone's better than me. (laughs) 
God made you special and he loves you very much. (laughs) It didn't say better than. It says in some way more important than. In other words, if your needs come up against their needs, you die. That's how marriage is, right? That's how marriage is supposed to function. That's how good relations. So so when your needs come come in, you know, confrontation with their needs, you're the one that surrenders. You know what? You do it. You take it. You have, this is so radical. Don't merely look out for your own interests. Who doesn't do that? That's what we all do. But look out for the interests of others. It's not going to deny that we have some self-interest, but, but be concerned about other people. How, how does she feel about that? How does he feel about that? So maybe they hurt you and you're mad and you're angry and you feel justified in it, but what have you thought about their interests and their well-being? What have you thought, gosh, maybe they hurt me because they come from a place of deep hurt and this thing happened earlier on in their life and they've never known unconditional love and true forgiveness. That's all they know how to do is hurt. So I'm going to get over my feelings. I'm going to consider them as more important. I'm going to get over my interests even though I'm suffering loss in this instance. And I'm going to be concerned about their interests and show unconditional love and total forgiveness. This is flipping radical. What if everything we thought and felt about ourselves in relation to others was deeply flawed? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So then what Paul does right there is he's holding up Jesus as the ultimate example of this. Because we, we all want to see this, right? We all want to see this. And Pastor Britt's not your example on this. Trust me. Paul doesn't hold himself up as the example. He's now going to hold Christ up as the example, the model for this sort of thing. And he brings in the illustration of the incarnation to try to tell us what this looks like. Verse 6. Speaking about Jesus, he says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here we have the idea of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has always existed. He is uncreated. What does it mean to be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? God has always existed. as a triune community of love. Christ has always been part of the Godhead. He existed forever in the form of God. Then it says, he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't consider that place of privilege and exaltation something to cling to at all costs. Okay, this is where we start to learn. Remember, this is illustrative for our lives. What what we do is is cling to those things. That that position, that possession, that thing. And it says, he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. It was equality with God. It was actually being God. He didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. Instead, His very nature as God meant that he had nothing to prove and nothing to achieve. Think about that. You say, well, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not God. So I have a lot to prove and a lot to achieve. No, 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 listen. What the gospel does is allows us to locate our identity in Jesus and to be fully satisfied in him so that we can actually say from a place of transformed life, we can actually say, I've got nothing to prove and nothing to achieve. And because Jesus didn't consider that a thing to be grasped, he refused to get, get, get. We're actually freed by the gospel from having to get, 
get, get. Now, the other side of the coin is the next verse, which says in verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God. Now he makes himself a slave. How radical is that declension? That fall, that humility from God to slave. Now, be careful with this one. When it says that he emptied himself, be theologically careful. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of deity. Okay, that, that would be a, a lesser Christ. The, the correct theological understanding of the incarnation is that Christ was fully God and fully man. He didn't give up his godness per se, but he became fully man. You say, how does that happen? Well, that's why he's God. Okay, it's not normal. He's fully God and fully man. Colossians 2.9, in him the fullness of deity dwells. So it's not that he gave up his deity. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? It means this, that he laid aside his privileges and his rights. Though he was exalted, he made himself a slave. He laid aside his privileges and his rights and became a nobody and refused to get, get, get and went to the place where he could give, give, give. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, now the gospel enables us to do that same thing in a way. Because of the gospel, we can locate our security in Jesus and realize that everything we need, we already have in him. So our security isn't in finance anymore. Our, Our security isn't in equity anymore. Our security is not in human relationships anymore. Our security is not some sort of reputation. Now our security is in Christ and his love for us so that we can say, I have everything I need in him. Now I'm free to give, give, give. And then verse 8 is the ultimate expression of that. It says, in being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. The ultimate display, expression, model of other-oriented humanity. It's not that that he just died. It's not like Jesus fell asleep and then resurrected. He was crucified on a cross, which at the moment was the most humiliating, degrading, wretched form of public execution humanity had in play at the time. It's not that he just died. It's that he was stripped naked. It's that he was beaten by people that he had spoken to existence, that he was spit upon by men and women who he had formed in their mother's wombs. It's that the thorns were pressed into his brow and his back was open wide. It's that he was mocked and despised and beaten beyond recognition, Isaiah the prophet said. And that he hung there between two common criminals having been exchanged by society for a murderer known as Barabbas. It's not that Christ just died for us. He was humiliated. And we are very seldom willing to be humiliated for someone else. So then these truths move us from things like selfishness, verse 3, right? Selfishness, the idea of 
pushing others down to selflessness. We're transformed to be able to live not from a place of empty conceit, which is the idea of just pulling ourselves up, right? Building ourselves up to impress others, but rather to be other-centered, to, to, to truly care about the betterment and the advance of others to the glory of God. We were previously driven by the idea of preserving self, putting self first, exalting self, which by the very nature of that will always bring disunity, conflict, strife, envy, and jealousy to humanity, things we know very well. Now we are actually enabled through the gospel to be different and to live different lives. And then that brings true joy and freedom. We, we always thought, they always told us that freedom was when you looked out for number one, and you got what you want after, and you moved up the ranks. The Bible's telling us the gospel turns on its head, and true freedom is when we promote, exalt, are concerned about others, and come from an other-centered, Christ-honoring place rather than a self-centered, self-honoring place. Now I'll finish with this. It's not, and this is very quick, it's not that we're being exhorted to this humble unity just for the sake of unity. Unity in and of itself is wonderful. It's necessary. It's very important biblically, but in context, we're not being told here to be unified, just to be unified so we can sit around and sing kumbaya. That's not it. There's a greater purpose here. Here, unity is the prerequisite for achieving the greater goal, which is the furtherance of the gospel. He tells them in verse 27, he wants them striving together, one spirit, one mind, for the faith of the gospel of Christ. Verse 2, chapter 2, intent on one purpose. And that purpose is the gospel. You see, here's what unity does for the gospel. It compels it and it confirms it. It compels it because the more we unite around the person of Jesus Christ and build each other up in it and support each other, the more that we are inclined to tell the world about Jesus. We are emboldened when we're in unity. If we're fractured within of ourselves, if we're all broken up within of ourselves, if there's inwarring, if we choose to break up and there's all this stuff, then it saps the energy from that necessary proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. But, but, but when we're unified, being built up, then we have this new boldness. So it compels the gospel. And then finally, it confirms the gospel. So that when we go out and we tell people about Jesus and they see us actually loving each other, they're like, you know what? Yeah, maybe. I, I see that. What they have to do usually with the church is we tell them about Jesus and they're like, I don't really see that. I don't really see this bigger thing that, that you guys rally around. I, I don't really see something that's so much larger than all your drama that you're sticking together. I don't really see some ultimate. I, I hear what you're saying about Jesus. I just don't see it in you and the way you guys love each other. But you see, when we're loving each other, then it confirms the message. It's a demonstration of the proclamation. Because the ultimate goal of everything for us is what verse 9 speaks of. Therefore, also God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the goal of it all. That the message of Christ and the love of God and the supremacy of Christ and his redemption and forgiveness and renewal and coming again is proclaimed to the world so that men and women bow the knee and confess with the tongue now as opposed to on the day of judgment. And then also the goal in that is that that speaks to us that the cross comes before the crown. We saw Jesus in his suffering before we see him in his exaltation. And that becomes indicative of the gospel lifestyle which frees us to lose. Whereas before, we always had to win. Now we see, well, Jesus suffered and was humiliated. So, so why, why do I demand to win? I'm free to lose. I've got everything I need in Jesus. And the first shall be last. And the least actually are the greatest because Christ suffered and then he was exalted, humiliated and then exalted. So that that frees us to be last instead of first all the time. We thought we had to be first. We don't. We, We locate our identity and our value in Christ who also suffered. So we're willing to be last. And then here's where I actually end. I lied to you before. <laughs> now, chapter 1, verse 29 might make sense. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Let me give it to you in the New Living Translation. For you have been given not only the privilege of believing in Christ, but you have been given the privilege of suffering for Christ. That word privilege carries the idea of a gracious gift. What he is saying to them, because they were experiencing opposition, and in their context, it was persecution. Really hard times, true loss, true difficulty, true pain. What he says to them is, God has graciously given you the privilege of suffering for him. Now, persecution is not our context, but we do suffer. What if we actually believed in two things that Scripture claims? That God is good and God is sovereign. What if we actually believe that? If we actually believe that, then at some level, some way, we would have to say, then everything that happens to us, even the worst things, are at some level a gift of God's kindness. That's radical. That's not always going to make sense. We're not always going to see that. But at some level, if we really believe that God is good and God is sovereign, then even our worst suffering is a gracious gift and a privilege from him. The staff recently has been afflicted in weird ways. This, your staff here at this church, three of them have Lyme disease. Who gets Lyme disease? Three people in our staff circle. It's not a big staff. Three of them have Lyme disease. This week, one of our ladies on staff was diagnosed with malaria. It's causing profound physical problems and brain problems. She has to go under an MRI. She's not here today. Another one on staff has this thing going on with his innards and no doctor can solve it. He's been countless doctors. No doctor can solve it. He has trouble sleeping and trouble getting up. He's in pain and discomfort and misery all the time. We've had some mental problems on our staff, some crushing weight, some breakdowns. My daughter has cancer. We're like, gosh, it's not that big of a 
it's not, it's not that many people that have all that stuff going on. So we've tried everything. We've rebuked the devil. Up and down the halls, in and out, we've rebuked the devil. We've confessed and repented of sin. Gosh, is there some sin in the staff? Like, wow, we are so afflicted. We have anointed each other with oil more times than I can remember, laid hands on each other, prayed, solicited the prayers of thousands of people, literally. We did everything we knew how to do until this week when this text was put before us. And we said, what if God has given us not only the privilege to believe in Christ, but to suffer for Christ? So we got together and we began to thank God for our pain, for our loss, for our suffering. And I, I, I don't know the end of it all, but I just want to testify that never before have we experienced such freedom and joy. Not in rebuking the devil, not in the laying on of hands, not in the confession of sin. But when we said, what, what, what if this is a privilege, a kindness of God toward us, and we ought to thank him? Because what if God, through things that seem like loss, wants us to experience great gain? What if somehow the cross is analogous for our lives and our lives are to be consonant with a cross so that before the crown, it comes? That there's some sort of humiliation before godly exaltation? What if the worst things did the best thing that could ever happen to us and made us more like Jesus? What if everything that we thought about ourselves and how we ought to relate to people was wrong. That what actually brings joy and fruitfulness is not the exertion and exaltation of self, but the valuing of others. What if everything that was intuitive about self-preservation was inherently and deeply flawed? That it's not always about comfort and victory, but that we are often more deeply blessed in pain and loss. Lord, we thank you that in your word you give us an understanding of victory and an understanding of suffering, a picture of power and a picture of pain. And we just ask that, Lord, for our individual lives, I know there's so much pain and loss just even in this room this afternoon. We ask that you'd meet us in our brokenness. Thank you, God, that you are the God of all comfort who afflicts us in all of our, or who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Thank you, God. You comfort us in all of our afflictions. Meet people, Lord. We don't lean on our own understanding, but we're going to go ahead and believe that you're good and you're in control and Lord, we would give you permission, very humbly now, we'd give you permission to do whatever you need to do in our lives to further conform us to the image of Christ and to make us less selfish. Lord, come and deal with our selfishness. We're, we're ashamed of that. It's, it's gone too far. We confess. And we thank you for the hope of truly being changed through the gospel. Work that in us. Prayer team is here. If you need them in any way, you can come and get on your face before the Lord. Let's do that.